You actually need to be a builder, not just an acquirer and an installer of software. So any company that thinks they're not in the software business, we're not going to have the internal tech talent to be able to do that, we think you have a good chance of being left behind relative to those who do do it. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Rodney Zemmel, a senior partner in our New York office and the global co-leader of McKinsey Digital. If you're not in the tech industry, developing your own software may seem like an adjacency a little bit too far, but it's just one of the things you may now need to do to execute a successful digital transformation. In today's podcast, Rodney will explain this and other insights from his recent article, Three New Mandates for Capturing a Digital Transformation's Full Value, which you can find in the show notes and on McKinsey.com. Rodney's joined by his two co-authors. Kate Smage is a senior partner based in London, who co-leads McKinsey Digital with Rodney. And Laura LaBerge is a senior expert in our Stamford, Connecticut office, who until recently was also the director of capabilities in our digital strategy practice. Kate, let's kick things off with you. Uh, A top headline from your research is that fewer than a third of companies pursuing digital transformations actually gain the value they expected going in. How did you arrive at this finding and and what's the broader context for your study? Fantastic. Well, we do live in, I'm going to call it tumultuous uh, times right now. It is also times where technology has never before been more important uh, in really helping to not just navigate that level of uncertainty and those uh, factors uh, within it, but also in terms of how to actually navigate to win in that environment. We've had the great privilege of of rerunning our survey that we do with about 1,400 different uh, C-level execs uh, globally, by the way. So this is touching every industry, uh, every region. And while much of the the sort of core tenets of digital transformation, they're still there. They're still the same. That's not different. But we have seen three new themes come out very, very strongly um, from the research this time round. Because for us, there will be ever more pressure on, you know, do I have the data that I need to navigate through this? Do I understand and have I really thought hard about making sure that my tech spend is is as productive as possible? All those pressures are going to come onto organizations. And so what we wanted to do was separate out if everybody's doing a digital transformation at the moment, and yet less than a third are really capturing the value, or at least the expected value that they had of this transformation. What is it that separates those that in that in that third that are really managing to do this, really winning? And so we separated out the the top decile of performers, both on a growth perspective, right, revenue growth perspective, but also on an EBIT perspective as well. Hmm. So, based on what those top performers did differently, uh, I understand you identified three new themes that you mentioned. Let, why don't you talk us through them? Okay, so the first we're going to talk about is actually how we drive real boldness, right? I sometimes call it audacious uh, aspirations in terms of what people are trying to achieve on digital. This is critically important, and we'll explain a little bit more why as we as we go through it. And as we enter into what I what I termed as this era of uncertainty, and whether that's what's happening with consumer demand picture uh, right now, if you're a B two C company, what's happening with the war in Europe, uh, the geopolitical situation and the tensions that are coming out of that, what that's meaning for tech sovereignty, uh, food security, etc. In our world, whatever your headwinds are for you, it is unequivocal that that era of uncertainty is getting tougher. 
And we're all human. It's easy in those instances to really hunker down and say, okay, you know, I see, I see the storm clouds looming. How do I uh, yeah, constrain the technology spend? How, particularly if it's not been working for me fully for the last couple of years, how do I pull back on all of this? And what we found with our research is that actually um, those companies that are willing to be bold, that are willing to lead from the front, do disproportionately better during previous crises, right? We know that from the history books and so on. So what we want to do today is think about what can that look like uh, for companies today managing through this level of uncertainty? Our leader group that I talked about earlier are disproportionately uh, likely to use technology or to think of technology as a differentiator for them. They are not just saying or not, yeah, and it's important that it's not just saying, right? It's still hygiene. You still have to make sure that you maintain current infrastructure and capabilities and to keep up with your industry. But that's necessary, but not sufficient. And what the leaders are doing is they're much more likely to see technology as a differentiator versus just a thing to, to, to exist. And one of the ways that some of my clients describe this is that move beyond the mindset of we're here to do digital, do digital things, to we need to be digital in the way that our company now works. And, and that's the mindset shift that we really see between those leaders and those, uh, those also runs. Because of that mindset, our leaders are much more likely to, to think of uh, t- technology as absolutely critical to achieving their strategic aspirations, right? It's more important to their strategy uh, than it is for, for others, at least perception, uh, perception-wise. Those leaders are twice as likely to use technology to be or to to divert their spend on technology towards new businesses, creating new businesses, access to new revenue streams, access to new markets, access to new business models that are reinventing what they are doing and creating the platform for the next five, 10 years versus just uh, technology for today uh, and for existing, as I say. We see it in every industry. I think what you do see, however, is some have been slightly faster out of the traps on that. We've seen in consumer and retail uh, folks saying, I need to change my business model. Can I create new growth revenue streams, access new customer pockets by doing it? So we see it there. And then interestingly, actually, in um, advanced industries, in um, uh, you know oil and gas, that kind of uh, energy uh, type space, we're seeing people really use that to embrace green business building, embrace new technologies as a, as a next horizon for them as well. But I'd love to tell you it was concentrated. It wasn't. We're seeing this in in every industry, but some a little bit out in front. So uh, one one last point I will make, given the importance of using technology as a strategic advantage, we're also starting to see greater emphasis on certain types of capabilities. And so rather than it just being about I need, uh, need, as I say, to keep the lights on and so on, what is becoming really interesting here is the need for real customer journey, customer experience, service design type capabilities that are becoming the differentiator as you start to look at how to how to grow. Um, rather than it just being about, you know, the algorithm itself or the technology itself. So that's been a real shift uh, since the last uh, the last survey that we ran as well. So Kate, I would like it if you could elaborate a little bit more on the difference between doing digital, I think, as you referred to earlier, uh, where digital initiatives are simply add-ons to the core and what truly being digital means. Yeah, I love that question. Absolutely love it. So let me offer a couple of thoughts. The first is actually when you look at truly digital organizations, they operate at a very different metabolic rate. The speed of the way that they operate is very different. 
And so one of the biggest differentiators of, or biggest indicators, if you like, of doing digital versus being digital is, are you as a company able to move faster? So let's say if you're doing annual planning cycles this year, then actually the leaders are doing that monthly or even weekly in some, you know, in some instances. Um, if you are thinking about the way in which you're uh, reallocating capital towards new investment pots uh, for, for technology, if the laggards are doing that uh, monthly, you'll see, you know, normally weekly, etc. If you're thinking about how you incorporate consumer insights, it's real time for the leaders. It's probably monthly at best for, for many also rounds. So there's something there about the metabolic rate with which you're taking decisions, uh, taking in information and actually able to act on that. The second thing that I would say that differentiates uh, the doing digital versus uh, being digital is the way that they work more cross-functionally. So in the doing digital, it's typically, you know, you're, you've got maybe you've got your chief digital officer or a CTO or whatever, and you're asking them, tell us about the, the roadmap and initiatives, right? What are we actually going to achieve? When's it going to happen? And so on. The, the being digital Everybody has the ownership of that across the leadership team. You don't just turn and look at one individual for it. And you are consciously and purposefully working cross-siloed uh, across the organization. And that's causing you to make those joins up, that, that collaboration that, again, is a very different way of working uh, uh, you know, from the traditional boxes and lines and, and, and silos uh, mentality. So that is very different as well. And the third I would just highlight is you tend to see that being digital organizations have a really strong learning culture. There's a strength of learning loop there. They're asking the questions about what is it that, not what did we do wrong, but what can we learn from, from that experience? And the way that the execs ask those questions, the way that the information is fed back into the business to continually be better, better next month than we were this month, better two months forward than we will be in a month's time. That learning culture is very, very strong in those being digital organizations. Thank you, Kate. Uh, really helpful. And, and Laura and Rodney, can you share your thoughts on any significant differences that you saw in either the pace, focus, or success of the digital transformations that companies in different regions were pursuing? Any differences between the regions specifically? From a regional perspective, I think where we saw the biggest difference was the starting point, right? Back in early 2020, just as the pandemic was really getting scale and starting to impact markets and supply chains and workplaces, the level of where everyone was in terms of ability to work from home, you know, infrastructure in the region for remote working or access to customers, degree of virtual interactions with supply chain, et cetera, they came from very different starting points. So in terms of were they all making these big investments and trying to build out their own internal infrastructure, change the way that they interacted with the broader ecosystem, as well as looking for building you know, new digital businesses? Regionally, yes, but the nature of where they were and where they had to start from was quite different. And so I think that that has been the biggest uh, difference that I've seen in terms of regions. Let me, let me add, um, if I may, Sean, just one other thing on the regional question. It's pretty well known that there are different regional trends in outsourcing in IT, right? So as an example, um, uh, Kate and I were both in uh, Japan. That's a market with the traditionally very heavily outsourced IT models. And we would argue as companies have embraced this sort of next generation of digital transformation, it's really hard to do that if you're 90% outsourced. And there's sort of no intellectual reason why your outsourced provider shouldn't be able to partner with you properly and do that and so on. But in practice, 
We just haven't seen it happen, right? You, there's a certain loss of agility that happens when you've got sort of big outsourced managed services relationships that's different from having an often smaller but maybe higher skilled sort of special forces internal team who can really drive the digital transformation. And that's been a difference in terms of how fast different regions have been able to pick up uh, digital transformation or digital new business building objectives. Thank you both. Uh, For the companies that are actually becoming more digital, how do you see them handle risks, uh, specifically security as, as as a firm moves more and more to digital more and more of their crown jewels may be more exposed uh, digitally. Kate? Yeah, it's a, it's a super question. I um, I actually think it's one of the reasons why making sure that you really are increasing the, the technology savviness, by the way, of, of, of the execs, but also the capabilities that you have is so disproportionately important. You know, it's not going away. It's not like we can sort of put ourselves in a, uh, you know, in a bunker and, and hope that the world is not is not going to be more technology enabled. And so in that world, Actually, understanding what that's going to mean for your for your company, for your um, you know industry, for your supply chain, your value chain, and so on, is really really important. Um, and from a security point of view, therefore, having robust, scalable infrastructure, understanding for the proprietary technology that you have, where the risks in your uh, you know in your in your chain uh, really exist. Is, is more important than ever. By the way, not just on the technology side itself, but also from a, from a data perspective. And it's those organizations that see technology as a strategic ad- advantage that are proactive on managing uh, for, those, uh, for those risks. And it can also include things, frankly, not just on the, on the pure technology side, but right into supply chains as well. How you think about the vendors that you're working with and their level of security risk uh, as well as well as what it's going to mean for thinking about your semiconductor. Maybe it's semiconductors, maybe it's lithium batteries, maybe it's solar panels, but any of the technology you need to be able to put your hands on in the value chain, that is also becoming really important. So the most uh, sort of tech-savvy companies, they see it as as strategic and therefore they treat it as such from a risk management point of view uh, as well. And it's really, really key. And the one sort of evolution I'd I'd put on that point is I think we're moving from an era of talking about risk in digital and in technology. And when you talk about risk, it's somebody's job, right? It's an information security officer, it's a chief risk officer and so on. So actually talking about trust and digital trust. And when you're talking about digital trust, then it becomes the full leadership team's job. That doesn't mean a lack of accountability, but that means a change in mindset and a change in awareness from how you interact with all your customers and all your suppliers in a way that earns trust. And the most basic level of earning trust is not having uh, people's data leak out into the world and being hacked. But that's truly the most basic level. If you think about using data in high integrity ways, using data to develop services that are high integrity and that act in a way that's accretive to the brand you're trying to create, those kinds of things are much more about digital trust rather than just basic security objectives. Understood. So that brings us to the second theme that you saw emerge in your survey. What type of technologies are the leading companies investing in during their transformations? Are there any specific ones and and what's their focus? Rodney, do you want to take us through that? Great. And you know, it's funny when we were having this conversation four or five years ago and people said they were doing some form of digital transformation, right? It's one of those incredibly vague, amorphous terms, you know, what does it mean? So when you click down one level into what it means, people used to talk about technology. We're going to do a cloud strategy. We're going to do an AR or VR strategy. We're going to do an, uh, an, an, uh, an AI or an ML strategy. 
we're not seeing so much of that anymore. And we're not advising our clients to think that way. Instead, we think you've got to start from business objectives. And there's actually only three different business objectives that we see as being the ones for how to think about a digital transformation. There is the first one, which is transforming your core business with digital analytics and data and so on. Taking what you do today and doing it 10 times, 100 times better. Then there is building new businesses. As Kate talked about, the winners in our sample set spend twice as much on the building new businesses as the, uh, the average company in our sample set. And then there is modernizing core technology. So that's where a cloud transformation so on might, uh, might fit in. And that's an enabler or an accelerator of the other two. These three areas in the most successful companies can often have different leaders or different co-leaders. The technology transformation doesn't happen without the business context, and the business transformation doesn't happen without the technology partnership. And companies will often move on all three of these at once, the most successful companies, and will do that with different leadership. Hmm. And so in your experience, are companies building digital businesses primarily in response to changing industry dynamics in their core industry? Or is it because they're seeing and want to pursue new revenue growth opportunities that others aren't yet capturing? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Sean. So um, I think the new business building thought most commonly started because people thought they needed to protect or replace the core. Right, The number of companies who are talking about being disrupted, people who are coming in and destroying their core business, you know, doing what Uber did to the taxi industry and so on. And I think we've seen a couple of surprises. First of all, disruption certainly has been a real phenomena. But you can argue, actually, incumbents have fought back pretty well. And whether it's the success of some of the big retailers or whether it's the su continued success of you know, financial services in the, in the face of everything that fintech was supposed to do to disrupt, the incumbents have fought back pretty well. So I think there were lots of things that were done strategically and defensively that have actually come to be growth moves and capturing new share moves. And often they were done on business cases that were around, gosh, if we don't do this, the core will crumble. And that actually turned into real growth opportunities. But it's been interesting to see how much uh, real revenue growth and not just sort of strategic hedging has come from these businesses. Just to build on what Rodney was saying, you know, what we also see is if organizations believe that there is a future pivot going to happen and they need to either get a toehold into that market or begin to build those capabilities in advance. They will start by having a small business. If you think of some of the large energy companies and the way that they're entering some of the green energy uh, and building uh, green businesses, the majority of their revenue is still coming from somewhere else, but they want to be developing those technologies. They want to have a, uh, an entry point into those marketplaces. Um, and we see this in many other sectors as well, where it's either a capability building play or a strategic hedge. And in terms of them looking for meaningful revenue share as they're building the business, you know, it's lower than it definitely was, um, you know, even four years ago. Hmm. Great. Um, great. So let's, let's talk a little bit now about what companies are actually getting out of all these digital and technology investments. Kate spoke at the start about how not all companies are actually equally reaping the rewards of their transformations. So first of all, pretty much everyone has a digital transformation. It's about 89, 90% of companies. That's been somewhat stable over the last few years. I'm actually curious about what industry the 10% who aren't doing a digital transformation are in. Maybe they're so advanced, they've already done one and it's just called uh, business as usual. But pretty much everybody is, uh, is doing something. But then if you look and you say, okay, to what extent is that really turning into value? 
about a quarter to a third. So 31% are getting the revenue uplift, 25% are getting the cost savings uh, that they uh, that they uh, they targeted. Um, these numbers are not that different from the numbers for transformation overall. If you look at companies who've just followed sort of a general transformation path, not a digital transformation path, but they're well behind uh, where they should be. As Kate had mentioned, the single biggest correlate of how much companies achieved was actually aiming higher. Now, that might seem a little contradictory, right? That like, gosh, people who have set higher goals actually have higher, not just absolute attainment, but actual percentage attainment. And we, we think the logic behind this is digital transformation is pretty hard and it requires the full leadership team to rally around it. And if the numbers you're aiming for aren't big enough, or even worse, if there are no numbers at all, it's just not going to stay a CEO or a business unit head agenda item for long enough to achieve the impact that you need. And companies who put out big goals and therefore make it C-level uh, agenda items are more likely to then go on to achieve those big goals or a higher percentage of those big goals. Sure. So does the type of technology companies prioritize affect how successful their transformations are? And are there any specific technologies that the highest performers are focusing on? So we see three different uh, technology uh, choices people are making. So first of all, is scalable technology back backbone. Second of all, is proprietary data and AI. And those two findings are not new relative to past surveys. Maybe they're stronger than past surveys. The finding that is much stronger in this survey, and we thought was really interesting, is this third one, proprietary software. So the people who are in the winning set are not just buying package software and configuring it, right? They're not just doing their SAP transformations and so on, even though those are important. They're not just, you know, getting Adobe and putting that in for an amazing customer experience. Those, again, those sorts of things are important. But they're actually building their own proprietary software, usually AI-enabled applications that are relevant to their business and that give them strategic advantage. So you actually need to be a builder, not just an acquirer and an installer of software. So any company that thinks they're not in the software business, we're not gonna have the internal tech talent to be able to do that, we think you have a good chance of being left behind relative to those who do do it. Hmm, that's interesting. Rodney, thanks. Can you take us now through those three categories you just described in a bit more detail? Um, so the first one, um, the, uh, the, the, scale, the scalable backbone. So what does that mean? It, of course, means cloud, right? And at this point, almost everybody is doing cloud. The companies that were in the more successful set had a cloud plan that was twice as fast as the companies that were in the average set. And again, very similar to the overall finding. If you ask the question, what percentage of you know, cloud are you operating? The single biggest correlate with a high number was people who had set a high aspiration. It was not, interestingly, how long ago people had started. So there are people who have been on 10-year cloud journeys at this point. If you've been on a 10-year cloud journey that isn't linked to a business objective, then you know you just see a trickle of adoption. If you've been on a two-year cloud journey with a very clear business objective, you see very uh, generally very successful, uh, very successful adoption. On this one, I think one really interesting point that we saw in the survey this year was that while, as Rodney said, these have been in play for a while, the organizations who do, did better in terms of navigating during the, the pandemic and being able to more rapidly stand up uh, workarounds for, as the environment around us changed were the ones that were ahead on these dimensions. So they enabled an agility 
and an ability to rapidly drive through change and and pivot uh, their organization, whether it's with their workers or their supply chain or with their customers that other organizations weren't. Awesome. So what about data and AI or um, artificial intelligence? Everyone talks about those these days, but implementing these technologies effectively can be quite tricky. The new finding in the survey this time is the answer is enterprise. The answer is not use case. So companies who have a company-wide strategy for how they're handling their data and a company-wide, usually federated data governance approach to go with that, um, or companies who have a clear view on how they want to use data to strategically differentiate um, and, uh, and, and create innovation, as opposed to companies who are just saying, you know, what are the use cases I can try and scale? Where am I piloting and so on? Those are the ones who are more likely to be in our, in our successful sample set. If you go back maybe more than five years ago at this point, lots of companies were looking for, you know, what's the sort of the, the killer app, right? What's the key AI use case that's going to transform my company and let me get ahead of the competitors? It's very rarely, I might even argue never, been about the one use case, right? And I can't point to a single company who's dramatically moved its market share through one uh, application of AI or through clever use of data in one area. To actually move the needle economically, uh, it takes quite a few different uh, different ones. Some work by the McKinsey Global Institute showed that it was around 10 or 11 different use cases, uh, often concentrated in one domain area, where people really start to see some economic liftoff. That's consistent with this data where it shows companies who've really taken the enterprise approach and said, how do we actually create a scalable backbone, often an MLOps backbone for our AI and a company-wide data strategy, not just firing a few pilot, uh, you know, rifle, uh, rifle shot pilots are the ones who are in this more, this more successful group. Got it. But it's the importance of proprietary software development that you found to be the most surprising survey result. Did you find that that importance was actually concentrated in certain, perhaps more tech-oriented industries? 70% of the companies uh, who are in the more successful group are actually developing their own software, right? This was really surprising. And frankly, we thought some of this would be industry-specific, right? So, you know, all the automakers have to build their own software and so on. But we were surprised by how robust this finding was across industries, right? Whether it was a company from the, you know, from the furniture business to uh, an advanced industrial manufacturer to, of course, many different consumer companies. And while there is a plethora of digital tools and solutions out there that are off the shelf that people can buy and people can install, and those things can add value, the companies in this winning set are consistently not buying packaged vertical solutions, but are actually building their own and building capability around how to build the next one and the next one. Not everywhere, right? Nobody or people are rarely like building their own proprietary finance system, but they're doing it in areas that are going to bring strategic differentiation to their business. So it's not software that they're charging revenue for, but we were surprised to see about a third of them have actually developed software products that they're looking to monetize and sell on to other third parties in their industry up and down the value chain. So 70% of the winners are developing software. About two thirds of that is software to enhance your core business. One third of that is to, uh, to then go on and sell. If you think about what that means from a talent standpoint, you need very different talent and very different motivation and a very different level of connectedness to the business if you're going to be a company that builds software and not just a company that signs and announces big deals with software providers and then installs that software. 
Can you share any examples of the kinds of software that these companies with, with, this, with this new talent uh, are developing and building? A catalog retailer, a formerly catalog retailer who realized that actually its supply chain was going to be its competitive advantage and that while there are many off-the-shelf supply chain uh, uh, packages out there, it actually needed its own supply chain model, its own supply chain AI forecasting, and its own set of, uh, of uh, supplier interaction applications to be able to be competitive. In their case, as in many cases, almost entirely built through open source components, right? So actually, there's a lot out there that's componentized that you can put together and sort of assemble for your own needs. But what they ended up with was their version of it. E-commerce is another example, right? There's many and many, frankly, very good e-commerce off-the-shelf uh, providers uh, that are out there. Um, the total cost of ownership can be much higher um, than is realized when you think about the number of developers and specialized developers that you need to configure those and to update those relative to using open source approaches that can then use more sort of standard Java developers uh, and then allow you to work at a pace of customization that is much faster, much more in tune with your customers and allows you to develop something that truly is unique for you rather than something that is, you know, cookie cutter, but then, uh, but then, uh, then, then tweaked for you. Those, those would be, those would be examples sort of at the common end. There are then like hyper sophisticated examples around clever risk stratification algorithms in, uh, in financial services or in healthcare and so on. But I wanted to pick, you know, like supply chain and e-commerce, things that everybody does as examples where people actually have seen the value in creating their own rather than, you know, buying off the shelf. Thanks, Rodney. Uh, Laura, quick question for you. Rodney mentioned how implementing these digital technologies effectively requires different types of talent. Can you talk a little bit about the role that sort of, you know, digital skill um, in the talent base and across the executive team plays in all this? As both Kate and Rodney were saying, the level of involvement in technology and technology-based decisions uh, and strategies that are uh, bolstered by technology is now not just one person's job, right? It's going through all areas of the business, both the way the employees are acting, uh, how they handle data, how they work across the organization, which businesses are you going to build? How are you going to rethink about uh, competitors? Um, How are you going to think about talent? How are you going to think about your supply chain and broader ecosystem? And so what we're seeing is that increasingly, this is the job of you know, really the whole organization. And specifically, looking at C-suites where, you know, even just five years ago, the majority of C-suites would say that, you know, the job of really understanding tech trends and and which technologies to invest in was outside of just a few sectors, really the role of the CIO or CTO or CDO. What we're now seeing is that, again, across sectors, not just within uh, the high tech space, organizations who have a sort of critical mass of members of their C-suite or executive leadership team who are truly tech-savvy and understand technology and its implications on the business vastly outperform their peers. The challenge with this, though, is as companies are looking to build out you know, their executive team with more tech-savvy members, it's hard. The notion of how difficult it is to attract frontline tech talent has already been acknowledged as a significant challenge and one that has only been getting harder as competition has increased. Building out your executive team 
is even more challenging. And so as organizations are trying to understand how do we do this, one of the things that they're looking at are ways to just get their arms around what what are the new demands of the C-suite? What are the new demands of an executive? If you want to have a leadership team that understands technology at the level that it can make these business decisions, that it can attract the right kind of talent, what does that need to look like? And what we're seeing is that, not surprisingly, top economic performers are much more successful at this. And I think what was particularly interesting about this was that they are also better at integrating their overall tech talent broadly. And I think that the, you know those two things are related, right? So if you have a broader set of executives who understand technology, understand the way it's going to inform and change the business, they will be able to create and foster an environment that is more attractive to tech talent at all levels and have them embedded in the organization and have them actually be successful in the way that they perform. Thanks, Laura. So for those companies in your research that succeed at reinventing themselves as digital organizations, how did they develop those technology capabilities in their executive teams? Specifically, are they focusing more on bringing in new talent from outside the organization, or are they um, putting a big focus on developing their existing bench, perhaps with more exposure to digital? And if you can share any examples there, that'd be great. Yeah. So I think in terms of reskilling executives, right, there's a broad set of things that we've seen companies do. And it's usually a balance of things like, you know, they might have, you know, a, a boot camp or some sort of a digital academy to try to get the leaders at least conversant with the basic, you know, vocabulary and foundations of what is relevant in terms of technology in their industry. But they are also really driving for more experiential skill building. So, you know, in one organization that we saw um, who was in the real estate business and they were seeing, you know, at the start of COVID, massive disruption across their space. And, you know, they had a, a small elite team that they had brought on before, you know, that really helped inform the CEO of what are the relevant trends for them in terms of accessibility of buildings, monitoring of buildings, making tenants feel safe, et cetera. But then, they wanted the executives broadly to understand what is it like to make these decisions? Do you understand the pace at which you have to operate if we're going to rapidly stand something up and put it in the field in weeks rather than years? And so they would you know, have the broader executive team really brought along on different sprints so that they could begin to understand both the technologies that the business was going to be leveraging, as well as the new pace of operations uh, for this to work. And so I think that this hybrid model of both trying to bring them along through experiencing technology and implementation and, and helping them understand it in their daily lives and how it's going to affect the overall business, as well as just getting some of the basic understanding of, you know, what are the technology trends relevant to them have been really important. I also wonder, Laura, as well, like um, there is a bit of a myth out there of uh, great technologists and not great strategists, uh, which is not fair. <laughs> I know many uh, fantastic CTOs that are among the most strategic uh, you know, thought provocative uh, folks that, that I've ever had the, had the joy of working with. So we, we also need, I think, as an industry to get away from that being a, an either or thing, because I don't think it is all the time. 
What has been really interesting, though, when you look at some of uh, some of these leaders, is everybody's grappling around technology talent. How do I, you know, how do I get them in and so on? Do I need to shake up my team and, and recruit more from outside? But there is much less emphasis, or has been much less emphasis, on well, how do I actually make those people I do hire wildly successful? And one of the biggest differentiators between those that, that do end up winning two, three years into that transformation is they've thought very systematically about how to make that technology talent wildly successful. They've rethought career pathways. They have um, really thought about the, the interactions they need to have with many other parts of the organization. Uh, procurement looks different. Legal looks different. Um, the way in which they just operate uh, creates an environment for them to be able to move as fast as many of these individuals are used to, to move. So don't just focus on the hire them in, but also focus on how to make them wildly successful once they're in. So are there any specific kinds of technology skills that executives need to possess today to perform their roles effectively that perhaps they didn't, you know, two, three, five years ago? You know, I see really four main mandates for, you know, tech savvy C-suites and executives as they try to take on all the things that Kate and Rodney have shared. Right. So the first is they have to be able to really understand which technology trends are relevant. How, how do they really affect my business? There's a lot of things that organizations can invest in the ability to prioritize and know which ones are actually going to strategically pay back for you, whether that's monetarily or more broadly in other ways, is really important. And I think one of the big differences we see between top performing companies and others. I think the second one is the ability to communicate these investments to the markets. I mean, we've seen lots of organizations who have invested sometimes billions of dollars in technology in the hopes that markets would sort of recognize them as a tech company as they now view themselves. And they don't see that reflection in the multiples in terms of their valuations. And, you know, part of that is, you know, how markets uh, might understand it. But a big part of it is also just the, the leadership's ability to communicate these changes to the market. I think a third way that I see is really understanding the types of talent, as Kate has said, right? And just being able to create an environment that attracts and retains and makes them successful. Each of those is a point important, right? Attracting is just one piece of it. And, you know, retaining and making them successful is the, is the way that you actually uh, build value uh, and also make your employees feel valued. So I think that that's also really important. And then the last one is just really understanding uh, as an organization how do you prevent organ rejection from the new ways of working, the new types of talent that you're, or the, sorry, the new types of technologies that, you know, broadly might be being used in your organization? And I think this is a challenge that, you know, uh, to Rodney's point earlier, as we move from, you know, thinking about data risk to thinking about being a, a digital trust, right? This is something that has to happen at all levels of the business as more and more operations and interactions are becoming digital in nature. Uh, everyone needs to understand the implications of that and, and be using that appropriately and engaging in it appropriately. And the better that the organization understands that as a whole versus one narrow slice of it, I think the, the more organizations will be able to evolve to be, you know, partners with, of digital trust. So we've talked about what's new and what's next for those succeeding at digital transformations. Are there any fundamental principles um, beyond what we've discussed that everyone should always follow to make the most of their digital transformation efforts? 
So some years ago, we came up with a, a six-part playbook for digital transformations, and this was based on some some, uh, some work then when we looked at a couple of hundred companies who had been more successful and tried to reverse engineer what were the factors that have made them successful. And we got to these sort of six chapters in the, in the playbook. What we've tried to do with this is to take the findings from this year's survey and to say, how does this update? And in most cases, it's not really updated, sort of put an exclamation point or add a further fact base to what's in our uh, digital transformation playbook that we think companies are continuing to follow successfully. So first of all, the key starting point for a successful digital transformation is a business-led technology roadmap. So really the strategic plan that the entire management team can talk to on one page that has everybody clear what the priority domains are, what the priority applications are, which, which places are, uh, which places are where you're going to start, which places get the, uh, the differential resource allocation, the differential talents and so on, and which ones can be laggards. And it's the exact opposite of an approach where a chief executive says, we're going to go digital and then just cascades that uh, sort of democratically out into each part of the organization. So the business led technology roadmap we've always felt is key. And with this year's survey is showing us that, um, that continues to be the case. And the level of boldness in that roadmap is the key differentiator on how far people get. You need to have a high goal. That goal needs to be in real dollar numbers, not just sort of, you know, fuzzy, you know, digital, you know, number of clicks or something. Uh, those numbers need to be about cost and about uh, growth um, and often innovation as well as direct revenue growth. And that can often be about building new businesses and probably should be even more about building new businesses as well as about transforming the core. So that's number one. On talent, that's still sort of chapter two in our playbook. We would add a, a new emphasis on integration, the data on the importance of working on integration of senior technical talent, not just finding and hiring senior technical talent is really striking in this year's survey. Um, in agile delivery, we see companies are quite far along, or the leading companies are quite far along in moving to agile. The winners are using modern DevOps and modern DevSecOps and modern automation approaches. The winners are also putting in agile approaches that have the business people, the technology people, and the control functions. So finance, legal, compliance, working together in agile pods. If you've got an agile pod that is just technology or just technology and business, then you got nothing because you're still going to move at the rate of the slowest step. So figuring out how to get all the business critical uh, functions, including those control functions, working in an agile way ends up being key. In tech and tooling, uh, the, the fourth chapter, uh, this year's big finding is around developing proprietary software, right? It's the importance of doing that, not just configuring, and what that means for the technology environment and for the talent environment. In data management, the uh, the key from this year's survey is about organization-wide. So not just around a use case here and there, but how you actually have an enterprise data governance and how you really then follow an enterprise-wide uh, proprietary data strategy, or more likely a strategy that combines proprietary data with external data to get to proprietary insights. And then finally, an adoption and operating model change. So this is probably more of an exclamation point rather than something brand new. The full leadership team needs to be increasingly tech savvy with bold ambition and real targets. If you're asking the question, who is responsible for digital adoption? And the answer to that is the CDO or the CIO and so on. That's the wrong answer. The answer needs to be the business leaders, the business unit leaders, the CEO, the CFO, and so on. 
Um, hopefully that sheds uh, some uh, some enlightenment on what's in this year's survey. And uh, thank you for uh, for listening. Absolutely, that was great. Laura, Rodney, Kate, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for the podcast. We hope you enjoy the conversation. You can access uh, the link to uh, Rodney, Kate, and Laura's article, Three New Mandates for Capturing a Digital Transformation's Full Value, in the show notes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com, or you can share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player. Thank you to all our listeners who've already reached out and rated and reviewed our podcast. We really appreciate all of your comments and feedback. Please keep them coming. If you'd like to listen to additional episodes, we encourage you to subscribe on your podcast player where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. You can also visit our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com ITSR, which includes written transcripts of more than 120 past episodes. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights on strategy and corporate finance, you can sign up on our Practice Insights page on mckinsey.com SCF, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.